Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm David McAllister, Production Editor at Prospect. In today's podcast, we're going to do a quick-fire roundup of what we think are some of the most interesting new books. Today I'll be discussing an excellent new history of Scotland by Murray Pittock, while my colleague Sarah will talk a little bit about Booker Prize nominated author Elizabeth Strout's pandemic novel, Lucy by the Sea. Peter Forbes will talk us through the wide-ranging Book of Minds by Prospect regular science writer Philip Ball, while Lucy Thin tells us about novelist Shehan Karantalaka's latest book, The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida, which she describes as a wisecracking satire set in 1980s Sri Lanka. So first of all, Sarah, welcome to the podcast. So can you just tell us a little bit about Lucy by the Sea and what it was you liked about it? So Lucy by the Sea is the latest novel by Elizabeth Strout, who is one of my favourite authors. So when Samira Books editor gave me this to review I was literally ecstatic and it's the fourth in the Lucy Barton series. Lucy Barton is a novelist. She is from a fictional town in Illinois and she's come from a very very poor upbringing and now she's a really successful novelist and in Strout's books one of which O. William, which is the one before this one, is nominated for a Booker Prize. We really get an insight into Lucy's mind. And in this book, it starts in the March when the pandemic first strikes New York. Lucy, who is at the time grieving for her husband, David, who was a cellist who, who died, escapes the city with her ex-husband, William who is a scientist and he's really keen to get Lucy out of New York for her own safety. So he takes her to Maine, which is the location for a lot of Strout's novels, including Olive Kitteridge, which is another one of her characters. The first book about Olive Kitteridge won the Pulitzer Prize. So Maine is like a constant location for Strout. And here's Lucy with her ex-husband, William. They're locked down together in Maine by the sea. That's great. It sounds like you are very enthusiastic about it. Um, <laughs> Just went on there, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, how would you say it compares to Strout's other books? I think that 
the inimitable Strout skill, which is just rendering every single character, big, small, in her kind of Strout universe. And, and those of us who are Strout fans will notice how characters pop up from one book to another. Um, so Olive Kittredge makes an ap- appearance in this book, a very brief one. So every single character, however big or small, is just rendered so carefully and with such a generosity of spirit that really does resemble her other books. It's different because it's set in the pandemic. It is a pandemic novel. And at the beginning, I guess, I had some reservations about the book because Lucy's a very privileged character and her experience of the pandemic is very privileged. She immediately flees New York to this big house in Maine. So I kind of had some... I felt differently about the novel for that reason that we saw kind of another side to Lucy. But then once it got going in Maine, it really resembled her other novels with the precision and warmth that she shares the minds of all her characters. And you say in your review that Strout never looks away from the loneliness that is inherent in being human. So could you maybe tell us what you mean by that? I loved this book because I think, again, just revealing what it is that makes Strout so special is she has this ability to show you the truth about a way that life is in a really subtle way. And I think This book is a book about loneliness. Obviously, that's within the context of the pandemic when we were all isolated, when we were all cut off from each other physically. But I think she's making a deeper point about what it means to be someone and how a quote that I end the review is, is Stroud writes, we all live with people and places and things that we've given great weight to, but we are all weightless in the end. And she's kind of showing how the connections that we have and we put such store by with other people are fragile, they're beautiful, they're important, but they're also fragile. And yeah, I think that was kind of a theme that was woven through the novel, through Lisa's experience, through the experience of more minor characters, and was a really poignant one. That's very interesting. So um, who in particular would you recommend this book to? First of all, I'd recommend it to anybody who enjoys Elizabeth Strout's work, which are a great many people, but also people who maybe enjoy books by authors like Anne Tyler or Tessa Hadley, books that really capture the richness of like day-to-day human interactions. I'd also recommend it to anybody who maybe does feel that they struggle with loneliness, because I think a writer just looking in the face unflinchingly the fact that all her characters suffer with loneliness to some degree or another there's something quite heartening about that and I think there's something that we can all relate our own experience to. And now Sarah's going to flip the scripts and ask me a few questions. David you're in the hot seat now. (laughs) Um, Can you tell us a bit more about Murray Pittock's book Scotland? What's it all about? Although that is quite obvious from the name but tell us more about it. Basically, Murray Pittock, who is a historian at the University of Glasgow, has written a new history of Scotland from about 1603 to the present day. So that's basically from the Union of the Crowns till now. He's taken an international perspective, so he's looking at not necessarily Scotland per se, but Scotland's impact on the rest of the world. So inevitably, in the time period that he covers it, we look at the Union of Parliaments and what Scotland's international relations were like before the Union with England, and then subsequently what it was like in British Empire, what impact that left in places like India in particular, where Scots had a disproportionate impact on the administration of a lot of colonies. Yeah, and up to the present day, and then inevitably questions about independence now and whether is Scotland's future relationship with the world going to be different from what it is now. And what did you make of the one word title? Does it work for you? Well, I think what's interesting about Pittock's book is given the time period that he's chosen, it's inevitable that it's not only a history of Scotland, but also a history of the Union, and because the Union was 
you know, the lens that Scotland interacts with the wider world for a long time. Yeah, it's, it's about that internal relationship as much as it is about this external view of the world. Even before the Act of Union, Scots were very accustomed to working beyond or outside the confines of their state because of, because of the nature of Scotland being such a small size and population. They're always looking abroad or elsewhere for opportunities. So it's kind of an interesting question about where does true sovereignty and true autonomy lie in, in nation states or whether it's actually an individual who go out and explore the rest of the world. You highlight that Pittock suggests that the Union has always been in a state of existential flux. What does that reveal about how Scotland is today? Well, in some ways, you can look at it in two ways. You can either say things have changed a lot since the 17th century, or you could say very little has changed. You know, in, the, in the original discussions about active Union in the late 1600s, you had Scots aristocrats proposing, oh, well, a federal arrangement, which obviously that never happened, but these are the discussions that we're still having today. At the same time, the global landscape has changed dramatically. We're still reckoning with lots of colonial atrocities and what empire actually means. And, you know, in the 20th century with deindustrialization and and now obviously with the death of the Queen, there's definitely feels like we're at a turning point of what it means to be British and what, what consequence that will have for how Scotland sees itself and how it sees itself in the world order. And who would you recommend this book to? I'd recommend this book to anyone who's interested in British history in general, um, and especially people who like works by you know, the likes of William Dalrymple, Tom Devine, those sort of people. Thanks so much, David. Hi, Lucy. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, David. So you read Seven Moons of Mali Almeida for us, so um, can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, of course. So since reviewing this, it was on the long list for the Man Booker Prize this year and has recently reached the shortlist. But it's a huge, sprawling novel by a Sri Lankan author called Karen Tulaka, who is probably most well-known for a novel in 2010 called Chinaman, and takes the perspective of Mali Amida of the title, who has recently died and is now investigating his death after being a war photographer during Sri Lanka's civil war. So you mentioned in your review that the book is written in second person, and that can sometimes feel a little bit removed. Could you maybe just expand a bit on that? Absolutely, yeah. I think initially reading this book, I very much had the feeling of the second person maybe being a little bit of a trendy trick that a lot of contemporary writers are turning to today. You can see it from Jay McInerney all the way up to Open Water, Caleb Azuma Nelson's lovely novel published last year. So I think I was initially quite suspicious of the you, you, you that was used it's not initially clear who exactly the narrator is talking to, which I think really gave it that distance feeling. But as the novel progresses and you really get into it, I so took to it, actually. I think it works really well in bringing the reader into this larger conversation, which the book is full of dialogue, um, as anyone who's read it will know. And I think that distancing works really well in that you know that this protagonist is actually in a limbo, um, is dead, so to speak, in that kind of Miltonic um, between worlds. So it kind of, it makes sense, but as well as getting that intimacy of bringing you closer to the reader. So it sort of works both ways. It's a bit of a double-edged sword and I really admired the trick by the end of it. That's really interesting. So could you maybe just tell us now a little bit about Karuna Talaka's career? Yeah, what he is, of course. Who he is He's... as a writer, for example. Yeah, I was so interested to read more about Karuna Talaka. He 
has had such a such a sprawling career as well, quite aptly for his own novel. He is most famous for Chinaman, as I said, which is about um, about cricket in Sri Lanka, and he has a huge amount of research that has gone into that, um, as anyone who's read that book will know, as well as also covering Sri Lanka's civil war in the 1980s. But as well as being an amazing novel writer, he's a wonderful journalist and also works a lot in the music industry too. So <laughs> it's sort of doing all things and explains his 10-year hiatus away from the literary scene as taking part in that whole melange of journalistic writing, musical writing, writing for records, but also being a father, which I think very much counts as a good excuse. Wow, yeah. I mean, that's a lot of stuff to take a juggle at once. So is there anyone in particular you would recommend this book to? Yeah, I think I think really this book will suit anyone who has a little bit of a taste for magical realism, so perhaps is a fan of Gabriel Garcia Marquez or Samuel Rushdie, but anyone who also just in general has a good curiosity for Sri Lanka's political scene. It's a very apt and timely book for right now, as Sri Lanka's political climate will reflect. But it sort of suits a whole range of tastes because of its sprawling nature. So um, I also think it's quite obviously referencing George Saunders's Lincoln and the Bardo, which was, of course, the Mambuka's winner in 2017. And Karen Talaka has spoken about being a massive Saunders fan and taking a lot of inspiration from him. So, yeah, definitely would also recommend to George Saunders fans and any great readers of Cormac McCarthy, who's also quoted in Epigraph, Twitter even, it, it seems to be a book that will suit a lot of people. So it will be interesting to see where it goes from the shortlist after this. That's great. Thanks so much for joining us, Lizzie. Thank you so much. Okay, and uh, Peter joins us. So hello, Peter. So could you tell us a little bit about the Book of Minds, which you reviewed for us? It covers consciousness, free will, AI, a lot about other minds, minds of animals, and then back to reflect on what you know, what are minds and could plants have minds? That's interesting. So you say in your review that um, Ball breaks the narcissistic trap of our sapiocentrism. So can you maybe just tell me a little bit more what you mean by that? Uh, interfering with nature in such a drastic way, we need to understand nature better. I grew up thinking basically nature was just out there and went on quite happily without us. We interfered with it, but it was okay. We could cope with that. We've reached the point now when we're a geological force, the Anthropocene. So we need to consider nature in a little bit more respectful way. For instance, I'm very interested in bacteria. Now, you know, we don't have a very high opinion of bacteria normally, but they're enormously influential in the environment. So I just think we just need to focus on nature in a way that doesn't always put us at the centre. It's not there for us. We're a latecomer on the planet and we're founding it up. And you felt that Philip Ball made this argument very effectively? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, all the way through. I mean, the way he talks about the consciousness of other animals, for instance, um, the octopus is pretty famous because it's a totally parallel form of evolution. It's highly intelligent, but it, you know, we share an, uh, uh, an ancestor with the octopus a very, very long way back. So really, it is looking at nature from a viewpoint that does not always assume that, you know, our way of looking at things is the only way. We have to tune into nature a little bit, listening to it in a way that is more akin to the way nature actually works, rather than just thinking we're at the centre of things. And he he Mm. does that brilliantly. I admire it very much. And with that in mind, was there anything about the book that surprised you? It surprised me. Well, snippets like... um, 
there are plants that seem to have a right comp- complex movement, the insectivorous plants, like sundews. And it turns out that this is really, I thought, really amazed me. Anesthetics like ether that, that will, you know, remove the consciousness temporarily of animals, they stop the sundew in its tracks as well. Now, Philip explains that's not too surprising, really, because the chemical messengers that plants use are actually related to the ones that we use in our nervous system. So although plants don't have a nervous system as such, then, you know, they have responses that are very similar to the nervous responses of animals. So there's a kind of continuum there between plants and animals that probably we never suspected. I didn't know about the fact that you can etherize a plant. That, that really blew my mind. And to finish off, who would you recommend this book to? Well, I, there are a lot of books about animal consciousness and so on at the moment. And I think also topics like, do we have free will? You know, what are we going to do about AI? Is it a threat to us? They're very, very big issues in our culture. I would recommend it to a lot of people. I mean, it's a very weighty tome. And Philip writes at a very high level. I mean, he is a polymath, basically. He he can write about anything. What he says, every two years, he takes up a new subject and writes a book about it. He moves around. So he's not like people who, you know what their subject is, and he always does the same thing. Uh, but he does write at a very high level, but he writes very clearly and it's very persuasive. So, I mean, it's high end popular science, but it's the best. I mean, there's no, honestly, there's nobody like Philip Ball. I mean, he he is unusual in being uh, his range and the level at which he writes. I mean, he, he can engage with scientists absolutely on their own terms, but he does communicate brilliantly as well. I'd love to have done a long review of this book. I think it's an important book. You know, I mean, I only have 300 words. So I'm very glad we got a second (laughs) bite at it with the podcast. Thanks so much, Sarah, Lucy and Peter for joining us. And thank you very much for tuning in to hear our discussion. If you enjoyed this podcast, escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of our new issue of Prospect or go to subscription.prospectmagazine.co.uk to subscribe. In our current issue on newsstands now, you'll find writing from Sheila Hancock, Will Hutton, John Lloyd and many more. Goodbye, and listen for the next episode of the Prospect Podcast next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.